0: You guys. How fun is this? This is kind of cool. Um, Happy New Year, by the way. This is our first gathering of 2019. And uh, before we entered the new year, I had two messages that uh, kind of caused quite a bit of reaction uh, back towards me in a good way. Not always in the good way, but this time it wasn't a good way. Uh, and the two messages uh, were the titled, Who is your God? Is he God the Father or is he the Godfather? And we can have two wildly different views of who God is based around the narratives that we believe. And one narrative is the fall. The other narrative is the cross, two of the most substantial and important events in all of history, and certainly the two most important events in our faith. And the fall, the narrative that so many of us have come to believe is that when we fell, when we sinned, that God separated And that is why we believe that God is all holy and he has sinful children and he can't have his holiness anywhere near sin. And so therefore the father separates. But we broke that down and looked at that it wasn't that God separated, that when man sinned, he felt shame and then estranged himself. And ever since man felt shame and estranged himself, that God has been chasing after his people to reconcile him. That's the narrative of the fall. And then we looked at the cross. And for so many of us, we believe that Jesus took our punishment on the cross, that the Father was angry, wrathful, needed to atone for sin, put Jesus in our place, and punished Jesus in our position. And the challenge with that is that Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. But when we really think about it, we come to this awareness that the Father was on his way to kill us before Jesus stepped in. And so we look at it as Jesus paying our debt as well. But the problem with that is that if Jesus was paying our debt, then we really aren't forgiven. That if The Father is actually just a debt collector. And so how the narrative of even the cross is complicating our relationship with the Father, and we looked at the real theology of the cross, we found that it is the victory over sin and death and the grave. And God brought a new covenant of forgiveness that's perpetual and eternal for us. And so as we change these narratives, it helps us come into awareness of who is this father God that we believe in. And so funny thing from this is that all this reaction and feedback I got was people who were like, I'm terrified of the father, I had people, all sorts of confessions come at me like, I haven't read the Old Testament in like 20 years, you know. I've had people say that, that they're just trying to focus on Jesus and just pretend that that Old Testament God doesn't even exist. Uh, I had a friend over the holidays come and spend time with us and she said, I read through the Old Testament all last year and I'm totally traumatized. I actually don't know what to do with what I believe And then other Christians have legitimate struggles. They read the scriptures in the Old Testament, and they wind up in Jesus, and they're like, I don't know how to reconcile these two worlds. And so this is not a new phenomenon. This is a problem that is 2,000 years old. In fact, in the first 100 years after the new church, Marcionism spread through the church. And Marcionism was the belief that, that Jesus is not the same as the God of the Old Testament. They believe that Jesus was such a contradiction to the God of the Old Testament that we're just going to pretend that Yahweh and God of the Old Testament doesn't exist and we're just going to focus on Jesus. And Marcion was declared a heretic, he was excommunicated, his writings were destroyed, uh, but his rationale is that there is such a contradiction between Jesus and God the Father that the God the Father surely can't be the real true God. And in practice, that actually describes a lot of Christians today. That we are great with Jesus. Awesome. We get him. He's amazing. Grace, truth, forgiveness. We love that. And then on the other side, we look at the Old Testament, and we're like kind of unsure. We find lots of challenging things that are in there. And so if you follow my teachings, I don't know, over the past decade, you know I have a favor for Jesus in teaching him. And it's hard because I get emails from people like, help me understand these horribly scary, awful things that I'm reading about God of the Old Testament, and so it's really challenging for us, and what I want to do tonight is to help us understand this huge divide and how to reconcile it. Does that, does that relate to anybody? Does anybody ever feel that tension of Jesus and God of the Old Testament, like these are the tough world to reconcile, right? And so we need an answer. For me, this is a thorn in my, in my flesh of my faith, a thorn in my faith, there it is, um, That you want to proclaim Jesus, but you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And if it's in the inspired word of God, and you have these challenging passages, what do you do with that? And especially being a father myself, God has continually been revealing his nature through my relationship with my own kids. And I can't escape, when I read Jesus, he came to reveal the Father. We can't accept Jesus without acknowledging that his main mission was to reveal the Father. Is that cool? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you're a note taker, I don't want you guys to stress out because I'm going to cover a lot of ground. If you go to epiclife.org slash notes, uh, that will give you the, the teaching notes that I'm preaching from tonight and you can follow us along. You don't have to stress out about taking notes. So my aim tonight and possibly the next message is to help us untangle this mental mess of who God really is like between Jesus and God the Father. What is he really like And how do we know? And what do we do with all those scary passages in the Old Testament? If I'm brave enough, I'll do that next month. So tonight I want to focus on what is God really like? How do we know? Because if you read the Bible cover to cover, you're going to get a very complicated montage of who God really is. And lots of seemingly contradictions. People say, well, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And people who say that don't read the Bible. I'm just going to be honest with you. And if you read it cover to cover and you you accept all things is divinely inspired, you wind up with a really complicated view of God. You have Yahweh of the Old Testament, who is judgment, he's got laws, he's got wrath, he's the military leader, he vanquishes his enemies. And then you have Jesus, who says, Love your enemies how do we bridge that world? How do we reconcile these two extremes? And so most Christians have no answer at all, and some answers Christians have are just downright terrible. (laughs) So at the outset, let me give you some perspective of how we've arrived at this mess. Most evangelicals hold to a flat view of the Bible, meaning that they hold that the Scriptures are divinely inspired, which I believe, but... They believe that if all scripture is divinely inspired, then all scripture must carry the same divine authority. <laughs> Love that. Welcome to Old Sack. Let me say that again. That if all scripture, if all scripture is divinely inspired, they believe that all scripture carries the same level of divine authority, meaning this two words here has the same exact weight as these two words over here in the New Testament. And so in this view, the revelation of Jesus is placed on the same level as every other biblical depiction of God. And this creates that mental montage of what God is like. And in this mental montage, you have parts of God that are Christ-like, but then other parts God is vengeful and jealous and capable of doing horrible things like genocide. And so no wonder so many believers have a hard time having passionate relationship, a love connection with the Father because they're terrified of this montage they've, they've read and collected. And so as you see tonight, all Scripture is divinely inspired, but not all Scripture carries the same divine authority. It's really important to get this. Are you guys with me? So I am fully persuaded that the Bible itself instructs us to base our mental representation solely on Christ, that the Bible is going to teach us and instruct us to base our entire mental representation of who God is exclusively on Christ. That is the conclusion tonight. And therefore, other biblical portraits of God may have nuances to them and We can understand them, but only to the degree that they do not contradict what we learn about Jesus. So that's where we're going to go tonight. Jesus himself taught, as we'll see, that all scripture points and leads to him. And so there's nothing in scripture that should ever be interpreted in a way that qualifies or competes with the revelation of Jesus. So you have the conclusion. Let's get into how we get there. So. The conclusion here is that Jesus is the sole and entire basis of who God is because, number one tonight, is that Jesus reveals himself as the same God of the Old Testament. Jesus reveals himself as the same God of the Old Testament. God's name in the Old Testament is, anybody know? Yahweh. Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? I I am. That's right. So God gives his name to Moses in Exodus 3. Because Moses asked, well, I'm going to go for your people. Um, who do I say sent me? <laughs> and he says, tell the people I am sent you. I am in Yahweh. And you see, I am in Yahweh intermixed in the Bible. Except you're like, well, I don't see that hardly ever. Do you notice how in the Old Testament you see Lord and it's all caps? That actually means when it means Yahweh. Because our English translation doesn't have a direct translation for it, so our English Bible uh, translates and just says "Lord," but it's actually either Yahweh or I Am. And in Jesus, in, in Jewish culture, rather, in Jewish culture, the word Yahweh was so sacred that they could not say it. It was like entirely taboo to utter the word. It wasn't only taboo; it was like almost borderline blasphemous to say Yahweh or I Am. And this is where, in Jewish culture, they actually came with other names for God, such as Adonai and Elohim. They came with all their different words and terms for who God is. Are you with me? So then Jesus comes along, and Jesus is trying to reveal the Father to the Pharisees. And Jesus is talking to them, and the Pharisees are pushing back. And they're like, they're questioning him. And then he says, Abraham is rejoicing seeing this day that I'm revealing who the Father is to you. And then the Pharisees reply, this is in John 8, says, You are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they freaked out. They picked up stones, you know, and they were, like, ready to go after him. And it said that Jesus hid. I don't know how he did it. Like, you find him escaping these, like, miraculous ways. But they were, like, coming for him, and he He hid. Jesus does this a second time, but most people bypass the scripture, and he does this right before his betrayal when Judas led the officers to capture Jesus and to take him captive. They say, who and where is Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answers, I am. And the scriptures give us a little detail here that we just miss, is that all the soldiers and the guards, they fell to the ground at the words I am. Wouldn't that be a little intimidating? You're going there, like, capture Jesus, and he says, I am, and everyone, like, falls down. Yeah, we're, we're going to continue arresting you now, you know. And so Jesus gives his name, the name of Yahweh, the, the name of, of God in the response, and people get leveled. It's awesome. Jesus seven other times uses the words I am in, con- in conjunction with who he is. I am the vine, I am the door, I am the bread, I am the light, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, I'm the truth. He uses I am throughout all of the scriptures. And at one point, Philip, one of the disciples, said to Jesus, "Show us the Father." And Jesus responded in John 14 says, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." And so Jesus makes it absolutely crystal clear that if you want to know what God is really like, you look at Jesus. And Jesus goes so far to say that even that he does nothing apart from what he sees the Father doing. This is John 5.19. He says, The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And so Jesus gives us the standard by which we view God of the Old Testament, and he's saying, I am the same God as the Old Testament, that Jesus is making that connection for us. So this is why we should base everything we know about Jesus, everything we know about God based on the life of Jesus. The second reason of this is that the New Testament reveals that Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. So we want to know who is the Father, who is the God of the Old Testament, how do we know what he really is like. And the New Testament affirms that Jesus is not only a picture of the Father, he is the perfect picture of the Father. Hebrews 1, verses 1-3 through says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and many ways, observe that, we'll come back to that in a second, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power, by the word of his power. Could be one of the most important passages in all the New Testament. Clearly, we see that the, the author of Hebrews is making a distinction about Jesus that he's not only a representation of God. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the perfect representation of God. And he's the radiance of his glory. But I want to draw your attention to the word many portions there. Did you see that? The Greek word there for many portions is polymeros, which can be interpreted as diverse portions or, more interestingly, glimpses of truth, glimpses of truth, that God, he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many glimpses of truth and many ways. And now Jesus comes and it says that he's the perfect representation of the Father. He's the radiance of his glory. What does the radiance of glory mean? It means that when God shines, it looks like Jesus. That when God moves, when God acts, when God shows up, it looks like Jesus. And so this means that people the Old Testament reading the scriptures were getting glimpses of truth. But now Jesus is the perfect view. It means that those who are reading the Old Testament scriptures, they had obstructed vision. They weren't seeing perfectly clear. This is so important to get. Are you guys with me? And so speaking of glimpses. Jesus also infers this to be the case. He says uh, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, which literally means uncovered and unveiled. It's not only like, I'm the facts. That's not what he's saying. (laughs) He's saying, I am the unveiling. I am the way. That is what Jesus is saying and so just like we had glimpses of truth in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying that he is the full unveiling. Jesus is what God looks like when there are no clouds. Because in the Old Testament we had clouds blocking the vision, but now Jesus, he is the unveiling, the full picture, the perfect reflection of who God is. And Paul is so convinced that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father, he said this to the new believers in Corinth. He said, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. This is Paul. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the most prominent scholars of the entire Old Testament. He knew the scriptures forwards and backwards. He had it virtually memorized. And here you're looking at the smartest guy, perhaps in all of the land for the scriptures, and he says, I'm resolving myself to pretend like I know nothing except Jesus and him crucified to the new believers. This is Incredible. And he, ele- he elaborates further in his letter to the Colossians. He says, the full assurances of understanding, the true knowledge of God's mystery is found in Christ, in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this passage now again reveals that there are hidden truths of God in the Old Testament that people were seeing in partial View, but now they see in fullness. It tells us that the fullness, the complete understanding of God the Father is in the crucified Christ. But Paul doesn't even stop there either. A few verses later, he declares that, that Jesus himself is the full embodiment of who the Father is. In Colossians 2 9, it says, For in him are, is all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all. Of the fullness to dwell in him. Notice it doesn't say that some of the deity dwells in Jesus. It's not like Jesus has part of the deity. It's not that Jesus is some of the deity. It says he's the fullness of the deity. Not one example of many, the totality of God. His spirit, His word, His wisdom, His glory, all that we can know about God is in perfect bodily form, function in the personhood of Jesus. And so everything that we can know about God is actually found in Jesus. And it was the Father's good pleasure to put the fullness of his deity in Jesus. Why? Because no longer would there be a mystery. No longer would there be glimpses. No longer would there be hidden shadows that he would have his entire nature revealed for all in perfect essence. And this was Jesus' entire aim in his ministry. As you look and read of Jesus, he is trying to reveal the Father. And in the book of John, we see Jesus actually agonizing, thinking, looking forward towards the cross. Remember, he says, may this cup pass from me if there's any other way. But then he stops himself. And Jesus says, no, for it is this reason that I've come for this hour. And so Jesus is thinking about the crucifixion, and then he says these words. He says, Father, glorify your name. That's a really weird thing to say at that moment. <laughs> and the Father answers, out from the heavens, this is John 12, it says, I have both glorified it, and it says, and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered the crowd and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. The father responds, I already have, and I'm going to do it again. And Jesus says, it's for all of you, not for me. What does this mean? (laughs) In ancient Jewish culture, to speak of someone's name is to speak about their character and their reputation. When we say, I'm going to glorify your name, speak of your name, any reference to their name is exclusively about their character and their nature. And so Jesus is saying, glorify your name, and the Father answers, I already have. What does that mean? It means that God is saying, I've sent my perfect essence in Jesus to live among you, to reveal myself in perfect clarity. That's what the father's replying back. But then he says, but I will do it again. What is Jesus thinking about at this moment? The cross. What does that mean? It means the father says, you've demonstrated yourself, my perfect essence in your life, and I'm about to bring my nature, my reputation, into illumination again through the cross. By saying, I love the world so much that we're going to lay down our lives so that people may live says, I'm going to glorify first in who you already have been, but now we're going to show the world how much I'm loving, how much I'm forgiving, how much I want to be connected to people. And that is what the Father is saying. And John revisits the same in 1 John 3, says, and this is how we know what love is. Remember, John is also the one who said that God is love, Right? So he says, this is how we know what love is. You could also substitute God. This This is how we know what God is, is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that we ought to also lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. So what is God's character and what is God's love like? It looks like the cross. We can answer everything, every question that we have about the Father in the life of Jesus, and more specifically, Jesus giving himself on the cross. And what is really important is that this revelation of God in Jesus should never be regarded as a revelation of God, among others. This revelation should be regarded as the supreme revelation of God that culminates all the other thousands of years of scriptures and people describing what they think is God. It should culminating to Jesus is revealing in perfect totality who God is. And so Jesus is not just part of the view of who God is. Jesus is superior and absolute in every single way. He is superior than any previous revelation about him. I don't care what it says anywhere else. Jesus makes this absolutely clear. I like how an author, Michael Ramsey, puts it. He says, God is Christ-like and in him is no un-Christ-likeness at all. So Jesus should be our entire basis of how we understand God the Father. For the third reason is this is that, hold on because some feathers are about to get ruffled. The New Testament reveals that the Old Testament can lead to an imperfect revelation of what God is like. Why do we need to base Our entire belief of who God is on Jesus is because the New Testament actually tells us that the Old Testament can lead to an imperfect revelation of what God is like. What's fascinating about Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees is they just weren't like stuffy politicians and people of the day. These are the ones who should have been able to recognize Jesus the most. They were the most studious, they were the scholars, they were the triple PhDs in God. <laughs> and God stands before them in Jesus and they miss it. So what is incredible about Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees is that these are the people who had the most knowledge of God, who knew him the least. Just because you read the Bible doesn't know you mean doesn't mean you know God. You had people who knew it backwards and forwards, could recite it, could memorize it. And still, when Jesus stood in front of them, they had no idea who he was. And Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And then get this. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus steps onto the earth and says, no one knows the Father except the Son. He's disregarding years, thousands of years of Scripture. The law, the prophets. He's disregarding all of that and saying, no one knows the Father. Now, we know Jesus uses extreme language to make a point. He will make an extreme and says, no one knows it, as maybe the contrast is saying, no one knows the Father at all like Jesus does. But the point is clear that Jesus is saying, Those who study and seek and search for him have missed him and don't know him at all. But Jesus repeats this again. This is in John 8, 54. He says, it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And then look what Jesus says. He says, but you have not known him. You have not known him. He's saying to those who are the most knowledgeable of God, You don't even know who you're talking about. How is this possible? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us an explanation for this. It says that the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So Hebrews says all the Old Testament scriptures are a shadow, and they're not the reality, and they are soon disappearing. This is the prior revelation to who Jesus is. That is what the Hebrews author is telling us, that it's just a shadow pointing to the future, that the Old Testament was imperfect. That ruffles a lot of people's feathers, is to say the Old Testament is imperfect in the way that it illuminates who God really is. And John makes this exact distinction between the former law and the reality that is present in Jesus when he says that, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. It's hard to look at our divinely inspired Old Testament scriptures and to admit and acknowledge, even from Jesus, from the Hebrew authors, from everyone in here, that, that this prior revelation was a shadow was pointing to something in the future that we would one day get. And when we get that, the other one is going to become obsolete. And so therefore, we have to look at the Old Testament as largely a story of God's people wrestling with an imperfect, clouded glimpses of truth, revelation of who God is, and that the full truth did not come until Jesus. So the, the conclusion here. It's clear that we, we revere the Old Testament scriptures, but they are not the full picture. Now, this doesn't mean that we just simply throw away the Old Testament and the text because, because that they are maybe imperfect, because they are shadows. Because Jesus says that it still points to him. And, but do you know what is the perfect revelation? It's Jesus. Just because they're imperfect, we need to be reminded that Jesus is perfect. And that is why it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of the faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter. Why would you need to have a perfecter of faith if your Old Testament scriptures were already perfect? It says fix your eyes on him, don't fix your eyes on the scrolls. And so something that is already perfect doesn't need to have any more perfecting. Jesus is perfecting our faith because we had the imperfect. And so when you have the real object, you fix your eyes on what's real, not the shadow that's being cast. And that's how we need to look at the scriptures. But Paul makes this stunning statement about the Old Testament. Again, we look to Jesus because he's the perfect revelation, and the Old Testament's the imperfect. But Paul says something stunning in here. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Translation. If you are not looking to Jesus, the Old Testament will lie to your heart about who God is. If you're not reading the Old Testament, knowing that this points to Jesus, and Jesus is the full revelation, if you don't do that, then you can read the Old Testament and have it lie to your heart about who God is. And only when you turn to Jesus and look for his revelation do you see in perfection and see here and see him here's the truth bomb of the night is that when we make god the father out to be someone different than who jesus truly is and was we partner with the same deception that actually used scripture to kill jesus when we make god the father anything but jesus and him crucified we partner with the same exact deception that led people to use Scripture to crucify Jesus. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, the Romans put Jesus to death, right? Nope. A lot of people think that the Romans put Jesus to death. It actually was the church leaders. And you know how they justified killing Jesus? Leviticus 24 16. The church leaders used Scripture. A blasphemy to kill Jesus. If that doesn't just, isn't that crazy? That you have those who are the most versed, the most knowledgeable, the experts miss who God is so completely. Not only do they miss Him, is that they then use the Old Testament scriptures to justify the killing of Jesus because. The Romans were the rulers. The Jewish people were in rulership with, the, or were under the rulership of the Romans. And the priests were the ones who asked Jesus, Who are you? Are you who you really say you are? And Jesus says, I am. And they said, He's committed blasphemy. Leviticus 24, 16, crucify him. And so the Romans just used their manner of death. But if you read the scriptures, it was the church leaders. The elders, the priests, the ones who had Jesus killed. So what do we do? What do we do with the Old Testament now, right? Do we throw it away? No, because Jesus said this to those who knew the scriptures best. He says that you search the scriptures for me, or you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So be absolutely clear. I'm not trying to throw the Old Testament under the bus. Because Jesus said, the Old Testament is about me. I am him. It points to me. It's a shadow. It's glimpses. It's imperfect, yes, but it points to me. And he, Jesus presents himself as the one whom all previous revelations are about. And that, for me, is mind-blowing. It's like, really? And so our responsibility is not to discard the Old Testament. Our responsibility is to read the Old Testament and ask ourselves, where is Jesus crucified in this? How does it make sense to Jesus on the cross? How does that reconcile? How do I see what God is really doing, revealing who Jesus truly is in this really rough Old Testament passage? And so that is our, our mandate for us. Now, if you feel like you are completely overwhelmed and embarrassed that you don't read the Old Testament scriptures, don't worry. Because none of the disciples read the Old Testament scriptures this way either. This is, not a, this is not an uncommon challenge. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, he walked with the disciples and explained to them all the former scriptures. He says in Luke 24, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And it says, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The truth is, if you are not reading the Old Testament, if you're not reading the scriptures, knowing that everything is about Jesus, you'll be deceived. And that even Jesus himself had to say, guys, let me break it down for you. So we shouldn't recluse ourselves back away. We shouldn't avoid the Old Testament. as We should look at it as finding that somewhere in this, there is something else going on. We have to look at the most difficult, challenging passages in the Old Testament. And if we look at it and we don't find God's nature and as it's revealed in Jesus, then we have to question, what is going on here? Something else is going on. Because the surface reading of it is no better than what the Pharisees did. Just because you read the Bible doesn't mean you know the author. You have to know the author and then read the scriptures. And ask God, open my mind like you open the disciples. Show me you here. Show me how this points to you. I don't get it, but you've done it once before. Do it for me now. And so what do we do with all these, frankly, horrific depictions? If I'm brave enough next month, I'm going to try and walk you through that. But I want to make sure that we all leave knowing this truth is that Everything we can and should think about God the Father should be solely based on Jesus. Jesus is the supreme authority. He is which all of God's character and his nature is embodied. He is the perfect representation of his nature. All other scripture, while being divinely inspired, point to him somehow that is left for us to discover but we cannot take any other revelation of scripture as a companion to the revelation of Jesus. It is Jesus and his fullness, and that is it. And to the degree that other scripture augments or maybe rounds out some nuances, yes, but where we find stark contradictions, we have to ask ourselves, what else is going on here? And so that'll be my aim next time. So I love you guys. Thanks for being here tonight.